question. What makes you get out of bed in the morning? Coffee. That's what Laura said. (laughs) What is it that drives you to do the things you do in life? What is the main motivating factor in your life? I begin by asking that question because we're going to see in this section from Romans chapter 1 what animated, what motivated the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. And the answer is the gospel. Last time we were in Romans uh, chapter 1, we were looking at the first seven verses. And there we, we, we actually saw some of Paul's passion and enthusiasm for the gospel. Remember, we looked at it under the heading, Gospel Greetings. There in verse 1, Paul introduced himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, as an apostle, in essence, as a messenger of the gospel, one set apart for the gospel of God. And then in verses 2 through 5, Paul stated some of the key truths of the message of the gospel. As he began his letter, he, he, he was so enthusiastic to share something of the glorious message of the gospel. And then in verses 5 through 7, he introduced us to his recipients, the, the beloved saints in Rome. And he offered them the gospel greetings, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we come to this Next section, verses 8 through 15, Paul here opens up his heart and soul to the believers in Rome. He allows them to see into his spiritual life. And it's because in part he wants them to know that his life's ambition is that the gospel would bear fruit in their lives and beyond. We're going to look at three things this evening as we work our way through this passage. Number one, gospel growth. Paul rejoices to see gospel growth. Number two, gospel encouragement. Paul longs for the mutual gospel encouragement between him and the Christians in Rome. And then finally, gospel witness. Paul knows that he has an obligation and he is eager to be a witness for the gospel. So let's begin by thinking about gospel growth. You might remember that we said that when this letter was written, it was following the the conventions of ancient letters. So Paul introduces himself, Paul then gives a greeting, and then he introduces us to his recipients. Well, here in verses 8 through 15, he, he does what he does in every other letter. He's got a section of thanksgiving, And the first thing Paul wants to thank God for is for the growth of the gospel taking place in Rome. Look at verses 8 through 9. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Now, we've said that Paul had never visited the church in Rome. He, he did know several people in the congregation of Rome, because if you go to chapter 16, he, he lists them by name. But 
Paul begins this section of thanksgiving with praying in the most affectionate way for these Christians in Rome. In essence, he says he never tires, he never stops praying, giving thanks to God for them. He always makes mention of them in his prayers. I don't know how you pray for your loved ones, the people you know best. But if we're honest, I don't think we could say this. Paul says this of those he has never met. He's always praying for them. They're clearly in his mind and heart. Now, you know what it's like when someone says to you, I've been praying for you. It's a huge encouragement. You imagine what a huge encouragement this must have been for these Christians in Rome. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, made mention of them always in his prayers. And what's, what I'm really challenging about Paul says is, is what he says in verse 9. He says, God is my witness. He says, he calls God and says, God can bear witness to the fact that I pray this way for you. You know, the one thing that's true about all of our personal prayer lives is that they are private. And the only one that sees our prayers hears our prayers, can scrutinize our prayers, is is God. And Paul here can say, with God as my witness, I never cease praying for you, giving thanks. That's the sort of prayer life I covet, I long for. And in many ways, this should challenge us, but it should remind us of the importance of the ministry that is private prayer for God's people. I suppose the question that comes next to mind is, what made Paul so thankful? Why was Paul so committed to praying for them? Well, look at what he says. Because your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Meaning the news of what God was doing in Rome was this real source of rejoicing, the source of hearty thanksgiving for Paul. It was being spread everywhere. There are people coming to faith in Rome. And this news traveled far and wide. Commentators sometimes will say here, you know, Paul's clearly speaking hyperbole because he says, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. But we know what he means. Their faith was being proclaimed throughout the entire Roman Empire. Now, now if you stand back and just think about it, this is quite incredible. This was... (laughs) This was a time when there was no social media where you could do a quick Facebook post or, or a tweet or, or send a message to a WhatsApp group and everybody would soon discover. This was a day where things were, where news was carried by word of mouth. And it seems that what spread throughout the Roman Empire like wildfire was the news that God was doing an amazing work in the city of Rome. And for Paul, this made him deeply thankful. Why? 
Well, remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. And, and this was the capital city. This was the epicenter of the entire empire. He rejoiced to know that the gospel was advancing. It was progressing. It was taking root in Rome. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who I've mentioned before, who, who preached through the book of Romans, he, he said, you know, when, when there is a genuine work of God's grace, when there's a revival, it never needs to be advertised. It advertises itself. When God is mightily at work, the, the work of God will be made known. And so, so, so here's Paul. That the, the news is coming to his ears that God is at work. Now, I suspect another reason what made Paul so deeply thankful was if you want to talk about a place that was spiritually dark, depraved, immoral, pagan, then Rome was it. Rome was a place where so many practices went on that it would not be appropriate for me to name from this pulpit. You can imagine why Paul was rejoicing and giving thanks. Because there in that dark city, the faith of God's people shone brightly. You know when you hear that there's Christians in in parliament or Christians in media or Christians in sport, we get excited, not because they're more important people than the rest of us, because we see that God's gospel is bearing fruit in various sectors and places. Same reason here, Paul, as a Roman city, the, the capital city of the Roman Empire, the gospel's bearing fruit, God's building a gospel-witnessing church there in the heart of it. Gospel growth was taking place. Just a, just a word on cities. You remember that Paul's missional philosophy was to evangelize cities. We, we see that in the book of Acts, don't we? Now, and it wasn't that he didn't have any regard for towns or villages or rural places. It was because he knew that if you reach the city, then its influence over a region, over a country, indeed over the world, would be hugely significant for the spread of the gospel. One of the things that cities do is that they attract people from everywhere. We just need to think of our own great city, London. An amazing thing is that Rome, this great city in the first century world, now had a Christian church at its heart. And brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded this evening that part of our mission as a church is to be committed to gospel growth here in this city. One of our great privileges is to be a church that receives people from all across the world, disciples them with the gospel, and then sends them out to wherever God may send them. That's part of the vision of our church. We're not an important church just because we're in the heart of the city. We're a rather ordinary church. But our church is in the hands of an extraordinary God who can use a church like ours for the growth of the gospel. 
You know, when I was um, in Detroit and in Kentucky, one of the things that really encouraged me was in both of those places, when there were moments of prayer, the people were praying for us, praying for you. Some of them have never seen your faces. Some of them might know a couple names. But they were praying because they were giving thanks and they were thrilled that God has a witness in this city. Can I ask you just a question, just to think through. When was the last time you were praying for brothers and sisters you did not know, you had never met? Does it thrill your heart to hear stories of that God's building his church in, in Togo, in Mexico, in, in Detroit, in, in, in Kentucky? For the Apostle Paul, the animating, motivating reason of his life was to see the gospel grow, flourish, and make progress in the first century world. And brothers and sisters, if, if, if you've lost that thrill, you know, you know, you and I need to make it the prayer that God's gospel would grow deep down into our hearts. Sometimes we, we, we lose our, our thrill for what God is doing because the gospel has ceased to thrill us anymore. The good news of what God has done in Christ. And so one of our great prayers would be, God, remind me of the glorious truth what you have done in your son for me now now the second thing we see now is that paul yeah he 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 rejoiced and gave thanks because of gospel growth but the next thing we see is that paul longer gospel encouragement look at verse 9 for god is my witness whom i serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing i mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by god's will i may i will uh, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It's interesting that when God appeals to God as his witness, it's one so that the Christians in Rome would know of his real affection, care and concern for them, but it's also because he wanted them to know that he truly wanted to come and see them. That's what he was for. That God might make the way possible for him to come to them. And one of the reasons Paul no doubt appealed to God as his witness is because he understood that he'd been saying this for a long time that he wanted to go to Rome. And for a long time, he'd not come to Rome. And you know what happens in congregations when someone makes a promise and it's not met? Start to murmur and complain. Oh, Paul's always saying he's going to come to Rome, but he's, he's never turned up. And Paul here gives insight into his prayer life. I'm always praying that God would open the way for me to come to you. God is my witness. This was the longing of his heart. And and, and we're going to see just in a moment, the reason he longed for this is because he wanted to be an encouragement to them. And he wanted to be encouraged by them. Now just before we we look at the gospel encouragement in particular, let's just look more closely at his prayer. You know, you could read this and, and, and you could say, doesn't Paul's prayer seem a wee bit vague? God is my witness. I'm constantly asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Answer, this prayer is not vague. This is the prayer of a man who's humble before the throne of grace. God, Paul does not presume to tell God what he should do. Paul, Paul does not State, God, you need to open the way for me to go to Rome now. No, he he learns to pray, God, 
somehow, by your will, would you make it possible for me to succeed in going to see these Christians in Rome? Paul's not laying down terms to the Lord of how this must happen. He's saying simply, somehow, by some means, God would do about. Now, here's a thought for you. Apparently, Paul prayed this again and again, and God prevented his way from going to Rome. And you and I should give thanks to God that he did that. Because if Paul had gone to Rome, we would not have the letter to the Romans. The greatest letter that we've been calling ever written. Sinclair Ferguson has got some amazing insights into this, into this prayer of Paul here. He says, there's a great lesson for us regarding our prayer lives. When you and I really long to do something or we really long for something that is good and faithful to the Lord and yet we find ourselves almost exasperated that it's not happening in our lives, you and I need to be able to rest in the absolute sovereignty and wisdom of God. To know that when he prevents us in one way, it is in order to prepare us and use us for blessing In another way, that at the time we might never have imagined. God prevents Paul from going to Rome. Paul has to write the letter to the Romans. Sinclair Ferguson says, Sometimes the disappointments of our aspirations leads to the glorious fulfillment of God's sovereign purposes. Now, you remember how Paul eventually made it to Rome? If you've got a Bible there, you just need to flick back one page. Acts chapter 28. He was brought as a prisoner to Rome. Because he prayed God. Somehow. Anyway. You know what's best, God. You'll do what is right, God. Now what's the lesson? The lesson is when we ask for things in accordance with God's will, he sometimes gives them to us in ways that we never asked, or we never imagined, but in ways that marvelously accomplish his glorious plans. Can I I, I say something just to encourage your prayer life? Every time you pray, God knows what he's doing. And he always answers in accordance with his wisdom, and his purposes. We need to learn to pray, not telling God what he ought to do, but submitting ourselves to what God may do his way. Let's adopt Paul's prayer somehow by your will. May you bring this to pass. Now now let's go on and, and see. Remember, Paul's prayer was so that he might go to Rome because he wanted to be an encouragement. So look at verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. 
Now just think about it. This is the Apostle Paul, right? This is the, this is the one that God has raised up, yeah, with a, team, with a band of brothers, Barnabas, Timothy, Titus, and others, Silas. But Paul here says that his purpose in going to Rome is because he wants to be an encouragement to them. He wants to impart a, a spiritual gift to them that would strengthen them. Now we don't know what that was, but we could potentially speculate. It was in coming to them, he was going to preach and teach the wonders of the gospel. And that would no doubt build them up and strengthen them. In fact, verse 15 seems to indicate that I am so eager to preach the gospel to you. Just so you know, right? Paul says that to a group of Christians. Christians need the gospel. It's not just the message that non-Christians need to hear. Christians need to be built up through the glorious message of the gospel. But Paul, the great apostle, responsible for planting so many churches, revitalizing churches, writing most of the New Testament, Paul says that he wanted to go to Rome because he, he longed for their encouragement. He, he longed to be encouraged by them. Paul was self-aware enough that you can't live the Christian life on your own. You need other Christians to encourage you. All of us in this room, we need encouragement. And you know, one of the saddest realities is that it is true that so often in the Christian church, there can be a short supply of encouragement. Each one of us, we need a son of encouragement. We need a Barnabas. We need someone who who encourages us. Not just one person, but we we need a family of faith. A community. You know, um, Paul had Barnabas for a season, the son of encouragement. And Paul himself, what an encouragement he was to Timothy and Titus and, and to many others. And, and brothers and sisters, that's what we need. We, we need to be encouraged by others and we need to go and encourage others. Something, there's someone in this congregation every week, or nearly every week, they, they send me a message to encourage me. It's one of the simplest things, but man, it is one of the most deeply encouraging things to my soul. We need to learn how we can grow in encouraging one another. Our church needs a culture where we see someone serving and we, we give thanks to them and we encourage them. We see one struggling, we're having a conversation after a service and they tell us about their hard work. We need to think of ways, how could I Possibly be an encouragement in this conversation to them. Hebrews chapter 10, which we read at the beginning of the service. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good words. Not not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. Paul understood that a key part of living a life that's motivated by the gospel requires gospel encouragement. So we've looked at gospel growth. We've thought about gospel encouragement. Now, finally, Paul says that he has to live his life as a gospel witness. He feels an obligation and he is eager. He feels a passion to be a witness for Christ. Look at at what he says in verse 14. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul was a man under orders. 
Now, where did Paul's sense of obligation to the gospel come from? Well, remember his conversion on the Damascus Road. When he was converted, Christ commanded him, you are going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul's obligation came in his marching orders. You are under obligation to take the good news and to preach it to the Greeks and to the barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. That was not the only reason why Paul knew that he was under obligation to preach the gospel. You see, Paul knew the depths of Christ's love for him that had been demonstrated in the gospel. Paul knew that he was not deserving of the mercy that was shown to him in what Christ had done. He he felt the love of Christ so deeply that he says, it's the love of Christ that compels me, that constrains me, that motivates me to do what I do. He knew that the love of Christ was love so amazing, so divine, it demanded his Life, his soul, his all. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul famously said these words, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But that was not the only reality that meant Paul lived his life under obligation to the gospel. As we work our way through this, Letter, we're going to see that Paul felt under obligation because he felt deeply for lost people. Romans chapter 9, this is what he says. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ, For the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul felt deeply in his soul the state and the predicament of those who lived without Christ, in particular his own people, even though he was commissioned and called as an apostle to the Gentiles. It rocked Paul to the core of his being that there were people who were on a path to a lost eternity. Paul would say elsewhere in his writings, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And so throughout his writing, we see that he, he, carried, he carried this intense sense of an obligation to be a faithful witness to Christ. One, because Christ had commanded him. Two, because Christ loved him and the love of God compelled him. And three, because he knew that those who did not have Jesus would perish in a lost eternity. Church, as those who are here this evening, who believe in the gospel, who have received the grace of the gospel, do you know that you and I were, were under obligation to make known this gospel? I've shared this before, that there's an African proverb 
There's only one sin worse. There's only one crime worse in the desert. And to murder someone. It's to know where the water is, the well is, and not tell anybody about it. God's opened our eyes. He's opened our hearts. He's opened our ears. And we are under obligation as those who have been loved by Christ, who have come to know Christ, to make known this glorious message. Now, now, now let me be clear, right? There is a difference between the Apostle Paul and most of you here. Most of you here did not get a calling to be ministers of the gospel. In fact, one of the distinctives of Reformed theology is that we believe that every Christian has a calling, (laughs) Whatever you are doing, whatever circumstance you find yourself in life, right, it is part of God's glorious calling for your life. So honestly, some of you, in one sense, it is not your primary purpose, say, in your workplace to be proclaiming the gospel, but it is mine. (laughs) But in your workplace, in, in in your Christian calling, God has given you, you are to work motivated by the gospel. You are to see that your work plays a role in, in bringing about God's glorious kingdom purposes for this world. You are to be a blessing and to serve the common good. And through your life and through your witness, whether you're aware of or not, you will bring glory to the Father. Because you don't work for your eternal master. You work for your heavenly master. And when people see the good deeds that you do, the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do, they will, says Jesus, give God the glory. Whatever situation you find yourself in life, some of you might not be in work. Some of you might be full-time in home. Some of you might find yourself, uh, your, your, your primary calling is in your family, whether it's as a husband, as a father, as a wife, a mother. Some of you aren't married and you're single. And presently, brother, sister, God's life calling for you is, is that lot that he's given you. And he means for you whilst you live out his calling to use it for his glory with a gospel worldview. Now, there's a great difference between a Christian in the workplace, a Christian in the home, a Christian who's married, or a Christian who's, sick, who's single than the person that's not a Christian. We know that under the sovereignty of God, That is his purpose for us, for this season. And we know we are to use the circumstances that God has given us for his glory and other people's good. Now, now here's what I love, right, as as we draw this to a close. Verse 15, because Paul knew his calling, Paul woke up every day with a passion for his purpose. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Paul woke up every day and he knew his purpose. It was to preach the gospel. 
both to Christians and to non-Christians. In fact, one of the reasons he's writing this letter is because he wants it to be a missionary support letter. He wants the church in Rome to support him as he makes his way to Spain. Now this is true for all of us who are God's people. We might not be ministers, but you need to know you should have pleasure in your purpose. One of my favorite films, Chariots of Fire. Eric Liddell, one of the most famous athletes of the 20th century, perhaps the greatest uh, that Scotland has ever produced. International rugby player, Olympic champion, world record holding sprinter, the flying Scotsman. And he's also a man of deep Christian faith and conviction. And the, the story's captured beautifully, isn't it, in that film, Chariots of Fire. And, and you remember how he made the headlines in, in 1924. He withdrew from the 100-meter race, his best event, because the qualifying heats were held on a Sunday. And he suffered ridicule. But he refused to compromise on his conviction to honor God. Unknown to most people is that one of the things that Eric Little knew deep down in his soul is that God had called him to be a missionary. And he knew he was called to be a missionary to China. But his desire to compete was also strong. And there's this scene, you remember it in the film? Where his sister Jenny really questions, you know, you're doing this running. Is he called to be a missionary to China? And Eric Liddell says, I believe God made me for a purpose. Yes, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. Just so you don't miss it. Eric Liddell understood his purpose in life. Yeah, was ultimately he was going to be a missionary in China. Find himself in a concentration camp and have a witness and then die. But he also knew that part of his life calling was to to run, to use the gifts that God had given him in the circumstances he found himself in. And when he did that which God had given him, he felt the pleasure of God. Nothing exhilarates my soul more than preaching the gospel. It's a purpose for which I have been called to. When you go to work, when you get up in the morning, if you work, for right now, it's the purpose that God has given you. And I know some of you don't feel pleasure, you feel pain. But listen, these are the good works God has given you in advance to do for his glory and for the sake of other people's good. Indeed, for the good, the common good. And in your marriages, in your homes, People who know their obligation will live with this reality that they know their purpose and they're eager to live out their purpose. Paul's purpose in wanting to go to Rome was to preach the gospel. Before he went to Rome and preached the gospel, he wrote them a letter where he unpacked the glory of the gospel. It's this one. And there's nothing that thrills my soul more and the prospect of preaching this glorious gospel message to you in the days that lie ahead. Let's, let's pray.
Oh God, we thank you for the gospel. We pray that the gospel would be our motivating, animating principle of our life. Truly, truly, God, we are humbled at the thought that you saved us from a lost eternity, from eternity in hell. You opened our eyes to see the beauty of your Son. You opened up our ears to hear the sweet name of Jesus, the name above all other names. You opened up our hearts and you gave us the gift of faith and you filled us with your Spirit. God, this evening, we rejoice in the gospel. And we pray that we may go and live out the gospel, that we would wake up every morning knowing that there is a sense in which we are under obligation because of the gospel, but that we would live out lives in whatever calling and in whatever sphere to make much of the gospel. Help our lives be witnesses in our workplaces. Help our lives to be witnesses in our homes. Help us to be witnesses as we live out the circumstances that we're in, whether single or married, whether retired or in employment. And God, may may, may our testimony be like Eric Liddell, that we feel the pleasure of God when we do the thing that you've made us for. We pray this in your son's precious and powerful name. Amen.